Good morning, Calvary. Yeah, good morning. It's good to be here today, right? And how, like, guys, how about the music team? They did such a fantastic job. And you know, when I, when I listen to the music team sing songs to God, sometimes I like to just close my eyes and listen to the voices rise up. And I, I often imagine, what, what's it going to be like when we're before the throne with, every, with people from every tribe, nation, and tongue just, just praising him? It's, it's going to be good. Anyway, if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Luke 24. We're going to read from 13 to 35, and I'm also going to get you to put your finger in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to take a look at uh, that chapter in a bit. So again, Luke 24, 13 to 35. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had, that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. And he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking? As they stopped walking, they looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? What things? He asked them. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who, who was a prophet powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. And besides all of this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find the body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, How Foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them all the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, that is, Emmaus, and he gave the impression that he was going to go further. But they urged him, stay with us, because it's almost evening and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he broke the bread, blessed it. Sorry, he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened. They said to each other, sorry, then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. Then they said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was walking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them gathered together who said, The Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now last week, Pastor Steve preached a message on the ramifications, if you will, of the resurrection. In it, he mentioned four world-altering 
yeah, world-altering aspects of the resurrection. He mentioned, number one, the world's fear of the resurrection and what it subsequently meant for them, uh, and how, number two, the world was now changed by the resurrection. Number three, how the world then dealt with the resurrection. And finally, number four, how the church is now commissioned by the resurrection. And so as Steve preached about the global impacts of the resurrection, I want to make it a bit more personal. I want to come from that 10,000 global uh, view of the resurrection and come down to about 10 feet, right? And so today, we're going to look at at the confusion that had come upon the apostles and the disciples regarding the resurrection and then look at what that means for us personally. But first, there's a lot of fog to clear through in this this, uh, part of Scripture, The main issue at hand is, in fact, the resurrection. Up to this point, we've had a claim to the resurrection, right? Jesus has been prophesying about it. He's been predicting it. But now, now we have an actual manifestation of the resurrection. And unfortunately, this this fog of confusion regarding Jesus and his death and resurrection isn't just applicable to the two people that we read about in uh, in this chapter, but in fact, all of the disciples across chapter 24. 40 of the 53 verses in chapter 24 depict in some way or another this state of confusion regarding the resurrection. But my friends, God is in the details. But first, I'm going to ask you a question. And this might be the most important question that you hear today. Do you know the Muffin Man? The Muffin Man, the Muffin Man. Do you know the Muffin Man who lives down Drury Lane? Now, <laughs> the way this, this little rhyme goes, some people would say, why, yes, Matt, we know the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man. Why, yes, Matt, we know the Muffin Man who lives down Drury Lane. Do you? Do you know the Muffin Man? Who is he? What's his last name? Man? Where does he work? Where does he live? Does he have kids? Is this a franchise? Is it run from a Mon Pa type shop? So again, do you know the Muffin Man? I don't think we do. I don't. That's a good rhyme, though. Anyway, we need to be asking questions, okay? Because if we don't ask questions, we too become misinformed and we become confused on, you know, things like the Muffin Man. And so details are important, right? Now, speaking on the importance of details, what about the stuff that really matters, right? Because honestly, who cares, right? The, the Muffin Man's a great rhyme to tell your kids, but it has no impact on our lives. What about this? What about in John 1? Doesn't it say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God? Isn't that what it says? I misquoted that passage on purpose, right? It actually goes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, guys, details are important, right? Especially for passages that reveal some element of Jesus' identity. Jesus wasn't a God. Jesus was and is God. But this is the sad reality. There are some, even in the 21st century, who don't know Jesus, They know of Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. They have a head knowledge, but they don't have a heart knowledge. 
And even in Jesus' inner circle, most of his disciples knew him at an intimate level. But there was always this sense of confusion regarding him in relation to his death and resurrection. This idea of Jesus dying and resurrecting was indeed a hard pill to swallow for these disciples. And so I'm calling my sermon, The Emmaus Road, From Confusion to Commission. Now, in this, in this particular text, guys, we get to see some of Jesus' own disciples in a sad state of complete confusion, disbelief, and frustration. And I don't doubt that their emotions were in some way, shape, or form related to the fact that their friend had just died three days prior, a slow, agonizing death. But hear me and listen closely. Their reaction was also rooted in the fact that they couldn't wrap their head and their heart around who Jesus was. So there was the emotional, but they just they could not grasp it. What they wanted, wanted him to be was very different than who he was. And this is no less true today. Like Pastor Steve preached a couple months back. There are people who pick and choose passages in Scripture to suit their own uh, idea of who Jesus is. Some take passages and mold Jesus to be this country western Jesus. Others make him be this social justice Jesus. Even people make him to be a prosperity Jesus. And yes, there are characteristics of Jesus that are uncomfortable, but no less true. And so, according to Jesus and, and even his own word, everything about his ministry pointed towards his death and suffering, burial and resurrection. Now, for example, on three separate occasions, you read in Luke's gospel that as he was journeying to Jerusalem and ministering, he pulled his disciples aside and he said, guys, when we get there, I'm, I'm going to be handed over to the, to the leaders and to the Gentiles I'm going to be beaten, mocked, flogged. I'm going to be executed. I'm going to be buried. And then I'm going to rise on the third day. Three separate occasions. And how did they respond? In complete, total confusion. And even outright rejection. And so in chapter 24, we get to see this confusion taking place. The day in question is Resurrection Day, or better known as Easter morning. Three days prior, Jesus had stood trial. Like I said, he was condemned to death and tortured, executed, and buried. And what should have been a day of much rejoicing and praise was in fact scarred by mourning, disbelief, confusion, and a loss of hope. And so, verse 13, Luke shows us that these guys, they, they were, oh man, they were all over the shop. They just had no idea what was going on. But what's more, all the disciples, both men and women alike, were struggling to come to terms with the last three days. Even those who went to the tomb early on that same day looked inside, saw that the body was missing, and they assumed that someone had stolen the body. Like they, it's like everything that they had learned in the past three years was gone in an instant. Gone. They just, they, oh, they just couldn't grasp it. And I think we got to pay attention to this, guys. For if if these people, Jesus' own disciples who got to walk with him, talk with him, and live with him, had forgotten who he was and what he came to do, how much more for us 2,000 years later, when we have to contend with the curse of time, we have to contend with rise and heresy, false teachings, and attempts to explain away Jesus according to some philosophical or psychological study on the matter. And so in in their confusion and discouragement, they left for Emmaus. Now, the fact that they were going to Emmaus shows us how absolutely discouraged and without hope they had become. For on that same day, hours earlier, the angels had told the two women who came to the tomb, they said, go back, 
Go back and tell your, tell, tell your friends, tell the disciples, tell Jesus' brothers that he has risen and that he's going to meet you in Galilee to the north. And they go west to Emmaus. They received firsthand reports about the risen Christ. And what do they do? They go west. They go west. Their sense of defeat and total lack of hope surpassed their sense of obedience to Jesus' own word. And so as they traveled in defeat, they talked. But this wasn't a casual conversation. The word that is used to describe this conversation, it it conveys this idea of a a passion-filled debate. Right? It's like this, okay? Every year when the preseason happens in the NHL, all right, there's one team, and I have cheered for this team. I no longer cheer for them. Toronto Maple Leafs fans get together, and after the first win, and I've witnessed this because I've been in it, the first win in the preseason, they're like, boys, this is it. We're not even into the season like Stanley Cup. 67 years running, this passion-filled debate comes in as to whether the Leafs are going to win the Cup this year. And guys, I can say this, because I, I cheered for the Leafs at one point, but I'm also a Senators fan, and we haven't won the Cup in over 100 years. Cleopas thought one thing, his friend thought another, and there was no agreement. Now, I imagine this would have been a sight to see or, you know, even hear. Like, guys, they were having it all out with each other. And it was. So much so that this stranger, Jesus, joins the bandwagon. And he's curious, what, what are they talking about? Now, just a little rabbit trail here, okay? This isn't a localized case of confusion regarding the resurrection. Um, remember, I said on the same day, there were two other disciples who went to the tomb. In fact, there was multiple, but two had gone to the tomb very early in the morning. They saw that the body was not there, that it was, they assumed it was stolen. And what, what happens? They're rebuked by two angels. Two angels rebuke them. They're not putting two, to, two together. And what's, what's worse, they run back and they tell the other disciples who are waiting in Jerusalem. And they look at them and they're like, your words are nonsense to us. What are you talking about? He's resurrected. No, he's not. Like these guys, they're confused. They're so confused about what was going to happen on that day. They couldn't, they could not comprehend the resurrection. And so no, this wasn't a localized case of just two disciples being confused as they walked to Emmaus. And we can go back even farther than that. In Matthew 16, okay, as Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem, he pulls his disciples aside and he says, I got a question for you guys. Just a little tiny question. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Such a small question with huge, a huge answer. And some of the disciples, they say, oh, you're Jeremiah. Or oh, some are saying you're Elijah. Or others are saying you're a prophet. And then he looks at Peter. He says, Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter's like, you're the Messiah. And Jesus He affirms him. He's like, yeah, I am. But what's more than that? He blesses Peter. He says, Peter, you are blessed because this wasn't revealed to you by men, but by God above. And then a few short verses later, in verse 21, Jesus goes on to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and resurrected on the third day. And what does Peter do? He re- <laughs> Peter rebukes Jesus. He's like, no, no, that's not happening. That's not how we roll. We're not going to Jerusalem for you to die. 
like, even in that short amount of time, there's that confusion. What do you mean? You're the Messiah. You're not, you're not here to die, right? Here's the takeaway. We need, we need to take this as a warning and an encouragement. The earliest disciples, they walked with God. They experienced him daily, but they failed to recognize who Jesus was. They were so enamored what, at what he was doing, what his ministry looked like, and what it could mean for them that they had forgotten what he was trying to say about himself. And so in verse 16, the disciples, they can't even recognize that the one walking with them is in fact the Messiah. Now we have no reason to believe that his appearance on this day was any different from his appearance three days prior. We have none. In fact, if you read a bit further in verse 36 and 36 to 38, the disciples totally recognized him. I mean, the whole package, the nail marks, the wounds in his side, they recognized him. So what, what's happening here? Their blindness isn't of themselves. It's, it's not a result of some sort of affliction or sickness or, so, or some sort of natural phenomenon. Their blindness, as Garland highlights, is divinely imposed. They were deliberately kept from recognizing Jesus until after the interpretation of the scripture. Their blocked vision continues a state that existed before Jesus' death, and their eyes will only be opened after they perceive that his death in relation to God's plan is found in the scriptures themselves. What's this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking, Jesus asked them. Now, these disciples just aren't talking, like I said. They're in this passion-filled debate. Now, playing into the assertion that Jesus was, in fact, the only stranger or the only visitor in Jerusalem, he says, what things? And from here, <laughs> this, is, this is crazy. From here, the two disciples explain their understanding of Jesus' identity to none other than God himself right? <laughs> so they say to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Look how they describe Jesus, a prophet, powerful in action and speech. Now, although Jesus demonstrated his divinity time and time again, notwithstanding his own resurrection, they describe him as just a prophet. Well, I mean, to their credit, they acknowledge that he was a prophet. I mean, they could have just said he was a great guy or a moral teacher. But they had every opportunity to ask questions. They had every opportunity to ask questions about his identity and what he came to do. And in fact, they did. And he answered them. But it was like deer in headlights. And make no mistake, Jesus was not shy on revealing who he was. He made his identity pretty clear. Now remember, he quite blatantly said that he was going to Jerusalem to die and be resurrected. Now that's quite a claim, right? That is quite a claim. But yet, in John 8, Jesus unequivocally says, I am God. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus took the name of God upon himself, uh, rightly so. That has ties back to the Old Testament when Moses came before the burning bush and said, who will I say sent me? And he says, I am who I am. So Jesus takes the name of God upon himself. Or how about Matthew 1? The name, one of the names that Jesus will be called is Emmanuel, which means God with us, right? Israelite children just don't, sorry, Israelites just don't name their children for the sake of naming 
children, right? There's always meaning behind a name. And guys, there's no one in the Bible who is given the name Emmanuel. No one. I mean, <laughs> right? If you name your child Emmanuel, or if you say he will be called Emmanuel, you're effectively saying God is now with us. That's a big deal. Also, Mark 2. Upon forgiving the sins of the paralytic, what do the scribes say? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But here is Jesus forgiving the sins. And not only this, he accepted worship, he predicted the future, and he claimed equality with God. So Jesus wasn't shy on the matter. But if their description 19 isn't bad enough, they take it one step further in 21. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Now guys, this, this verse can be preached 12 ways from Sunday. We could talk about what this hope was. We could talk about what it meant for Israel to be redeemed. We could talk about what it was that they were being redeemed from. But quite frankly, this verse, this is the proverbial cherry on top which confirms their understanding of Jesus. In other words, they had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, right? And in fact, he was, right? In fact, he was, but not in the way that he was going to do it. They wanted one thing, but Jesus was doing something completely different. Let me explain something, okay? So for the better part of Israel's existence, they had been under occupation, subjugation, and oppression by various foreign governments, the Babylonians, the Medes and Persians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, and now the Romans. Israel understood what it meant to be occupied. And by the first century, it was a boiling pot of pent-up frustration at being ruled by foreign entities. These guys were literally on standby for the arrival of their Messiah or someone who would free them from political oppression and governmental oppression from their enemies. This, this idea of a human Messiah is not foreign to, to Israel. Like You go back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, which was written 4,000 years before Jesus came. Genesis 49.10, one of the earliest prophecies of a coming Messiah who would redeem Israel. But as Craig Evans highlights, it was Jesus' willingness to die and suffer, which stands in marked contrast to the widespread expectation of a coming Messiah who would slay his enemies. The fact that he did not attempt to overthrow the Roman occupiers and reclaim Israel's throne might have been the reason why many rejected him. They wished for him to pursue a violent military goal, whereas he instead came to usher in the loving, merciful, forgiving kingdom of God. As for his fulfillment of the Bible's messianic prince, uh, expectations, it must not be missed that he first came to die for sinners. But my friends, he will come as a conquering king. He will come as a conquering king. Right? The, the disciples, they couldn't comprehend a Messiah who would die and be raised to life again. Look at your Bibles, verse 21. Besides all of this, it's the third day since these things happened. Now see, look, these disciples, they had clearly recalled something about Jesus' resurrection. They recalled something about his death. Remember what I said earlier, on three separate occasions, Jesus did pull them aside and, and he said, guys, I'm, I'm going to do just this. So that they, it's, it's like they had something, some recollection. And what's more, and what's more, 
you can almost taste the lack of faith that these two had, right? And for these guys, this, they were living a roller coaster ride with Jesus. And now it appeared to be over. It was like life has come to a crashing halt. Their faith was shaken. And it was probably a mix of disbelief that their Messiah and friend had just died with a shame in failing to do the one thing God has asked them to do. Have faith. Have faith in his word. Have faith in his promises. And have faith in who he is. But if it could only have stopped for them, it's like watching this train wreck happen, happening. Not only are they mourning the death of their friend, but here, here it comes, guys. What they perceive to be this stranger, who is in fact Jesus, one who they don't even recognize as their Messiah, he rebukes them. Oh, foolish and slow to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter his glory? Oh, this is, guys, this is a grade A rebuking. But it's also the most tender thing that Jesus does here. Remember what Pastor Steve preached uh, last week. He, he tells us that Jesus told the women who came to the tomb to go back to his brothers and he will sit by the sea and patiently, lovingly correct and refocus Peter. He will appear to the doubting Thomas and not only relieve his doubts, but also challenge them. And guys, here, here's the crazy part, right? We know this is Jesus because the text says so. But these, he's a stranger to these guys. Their eyes are blinded. They don't know it's Jesus. And can you imagine what they must have felt, right? Here they are three days after watching their friend be tortured, hung from a cross, die, be buried, and then to them just be buried. That's it. Like they're in, they're in a state of mourning. Now for anyone who has lost a loved one, you can relate to the feelings that they must have, have felt. It would have been bitter, full of pain and sadness. Now imagine, imagine being at the funeral for someone you've lost and you're mourning and someone comes up behind you and says, they had it coming. Ooh. If it was me, I'd be thinking, Lord, give me patience, right? They had it coming. But you know what? This stranger had it coming. The Messiah had it coming. He prophesied about it. He talked about it. He prepared them for it and he embraced it. Now, I don't know about you, but being rebuked, it's not fun. That this guy was a random stranger must have been a real kick to the guts. But how, how do they respond? Silence. Or perceived silence. Or maybe the sting, the sting of what this stranger was saying had pierced their hearts. Maybe it was the truth that had pierced their hearts. Or maybe they actually knew that the Christ had to suffer and that they had forgotten. Or maybe, maybe they were ashamed. Because they had forgotten. For these two and us, the failure here is not intellectual failure. They saw it. They lived it. They experienced it. But they couldn't wrap their heart around a suffering or resurrecting Messiah. Now, I want to switch gears here for a second. All right? So up to this point, we've talked about this mass identity confusion surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection. But it's the resurrection, not his death or his miracles or his public ministry, that has far greater implications for everyone None of his ministry makes sense apart from his death and resurrection. The Old Testament anticipated it. 
Jesus predicted it, and that empty tomb on Easter morning confirmed it. Okay, let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. This is one of my all-time favorite passages in the Bible. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Paul summarizes the gospel. He says, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he, according to the scriptures, he was raised on the third day. This is a beautiful, quick summary of the gospel. Paul takes the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation and crams it into two verses. And now Paul, in his own handwriting, he does something here that absolutely blows my mind. No doubt what he writes, it's crystal clear. It's, it's a great presentation of the gospel. But he uses three words in his presentation, died, buried, and raised. All right? The way Paul writes raised is slightly different from the other two. All right, now I'm talking about the Greek text, okay? Because it's important. It, now, if you guys are going to take notes, please don't miss this. Yes, the resurrection happened in the past. But listen, the way it was written conveys the idea that the effects of the resurrection are still ongoing today. It's still being felt. The effects of the resurrection are still reverberating around the earth Yes, his burial happened, but it's the resurrection that's the game changer. The sinner who puts his faith in Christ, the resurrection. The one who walks from death to life, the resurrection. The heart of stone that's turned to a heart of flesh, the resurrection. That we can come boldly and confidently before God, the resurrection. What about this? We have the forgiveness of sins forever because of the resurrection. The sting of death is gone because of the resurrection. And we too are guaranteed to resurrect with him. Do you believe it, guys? Do you? Do you understand it? You are here today because of something that happened 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago. Guys, praise God. The resurrection changed everything. And then to drive it all home, Jesus began interpreting for them all the things concerning himself in the scriptures beginning with Moses and all the prophets. My friends, this is grace at its finest. But they came to Christ with strings attached. You can almost hear Jesus saying, the greatest thing you think you need is political freedom, but I'm going to give you something greater. And so, Calvary, I want to challenge you point blank today. Is there something you think you need? Guys, I get it. I get it. We all have inner demons. We all have battles that we're facing. We all have our own circumstances to work through. I've seen God work in my life. I've seen God work in the lives of others. I've seen God put or take dry bones and make them life. Not, not literally, but spiritually, right? I've seen God do crazy, amazing things. And this is the gospel. Jesus is greater than anything on this earth. Because he became that suffering servant, because he obediently went to the cross of Calvary, because he took the sins of the world on his shoulders, we are set free. We are set free indeed. And by his stripes, we have been healed. By his stripes, we are healed. Jesus, this stranger, he could have kept on walking. 
And indeed, he almost did. But instead, he took the time to move them past the realm of skepticism to the realm of belief. Again, like Pastor Steve mentioned in Matthew 28, they worshipped, but some doubted. That is, they went from thinking, could, could it be true? Is, is, this, is this the real deal? Will, will this actually happen to the reality of a promise given, spirit indwelt, Jesus empowered, and God as our Father type of believer? He met them where they were at, and in an act of pure love, he opened the scripture and said, look, everything that's happened is right here. Jesus, Jesus gave them the evidence, and their hearts burned inside them. And this is where, as some call it, the greatest Bible study never told takes place. Luke doesn't give us the specific passages that Jesus did, only that he went to Moses and all the prophets. Now, it's not hard imagining that he would have referenced Deuteronomy 21 or Isaiah 53 or even Isaiah 7, 14. I, I don't believe the point here is to try to pick and ch- or figure out what passages Jesus used. I believe the point is this, that we also run the same risk if we don't spend time in the Bible of forgetting who Jesus is. That through his death and resurrection, sins are forgiven, death is destroyed, and our relationship with the Father is reconciled. As one commentator puts it, the picture we get is of the Old Testament as pointing to Jesus in all its parts. We should perhaps understand that throughout the Old Testament, a constant divine purpose is being worked out. A purpose that in the end meant and must mean the cross. The terribleness of sin is found in the Old Testament. But guys, so is the deep, deep love of God. In the end, the combination meant Calvary was inevitable. And so we pick up in verse 28. We see the disciples, along with this stranger friend, have come to Emmaus. They've come to their destination, and Jesus makes the motion that he's going to go further. But they urge him to stay. And rightly so, for evening was about to draw near. The dangers of traveling any unlit path after dark were worrisome enough for a group of people, let alone a random stranger. And so Jesus joins his disciples in, the, as, in their house as a guest, but he does something crazy here. He, he takes the, the natural order and reverses it. He now becomes the host. In verse 30, we read that he took bread blessed it, and breaking it, gave it to them. This is something that the host of the house should have done, not the guest. But here it is, it's Jesus. And it's in the breaking, blessing, and distributing of the bread that their eyes are finally opened. But why? What was it about this action that made the difference? Could it be that they had experienced the same action somewhere else in his ministry? Or maybe they were present when he fed the 5,000. For in the same way that he Uh, took the bread, uh, blessed it, and broke it at this meal. He did the same thing for the 5,000, or maybe, okay? Now, this is conjecture, okay? But maybe as he picked up the bread to pray and he broke it, they saw the nail marks in his hands, and their eyes were opened. Either way, they now recognized their Savior, and their hearts were burning inside of them as they did it. The veil was now lifted. What did they do? At that very hour, as night came, they got up and ran back to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was about seven miles, okay? I can't run seven miles. Uh, Maybe someday in the future. 
They didn't care about danger or what people would say or what people would think. They encountered the risen Christ. They were self-propelled to go and tell the other disciples. Their hearts went from, went from being slow uh, to, to believe to being on fire for Christ. That's what the knowledge and that's what the experience of Jesus does to you. They went from confusion to commission. And so where do we go from here? All right. Where do we go? This chapter reminds us that we too can lose sight of Christ. God, he created us to experience him with all five of our senses. And and no doubt we should. We absolutely should. But our faith must be grounded in the word. Our God is awesome. Okay, Michael W. Smith, our God is anyway. Our God is awesome. We have the privilege to see some pretty amazing things happening at the hands of our creator. But we need to be in the word. If they can forget, we can forget. If they can fail to believe, we can fail to believe. Remember, just because they forgot and failed to believe, Jesus, he was reduced to a prophet. And he's so much more. When he didn't live up to what who they when he didn't live up to who they wanted him to be, their foundations were shaken. But my friends, I will say this. Guys, get into the word. Meditate on it. Let it nurture you and feed you and equip you. Spend time in it. Soak in it. Let it convict you and encourage you. The implications of the resurrection are greater than anyone can preach in a 40-minute sermon. I've given you a handful. I would encourage you, spend time in 1 Corinthians 15. That's just a sliver of what the resurrection means for us. But to you, O Christian, your sins have been forgiven. You are now in, in a right relationship with the Father. Is this not good news? Is this not good news? You have encountered the risen Christ, no? No? Yes? Good. If it's good news, go. Go tell people. This is the good news. Guys, we have the spirit of the living God inside of us. Jesus himself, Emmanuel, God with us, will by his grace and strength empower us for his purpose and glory. For how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Let us pray. Father, your word, the Bible, is filled with countless examples of your mercy, your grace, and your willingness to bear with us in our times of weakness. Thank you that you give us your word to learn from. Your word is good for correction. It's good for teaching, for learning and equipping. And let us not take for granted, Lord, the accessibility that you have given us to your word. Lord Jesus, please don't let us make you so common and ordinary that your power and strength becomes common and ordinary and stale in our hearts. By your spirit, may you burn inside of us so that we will take your word and bring it out to the nations. May you become alive and sharper than a two-edged sword in our hearts. And by your grace and power, will you strengthen us for your good purpose. Amen.